0: This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. So I don't know about you, but I've really been enjoying this series, um, Who is Jesus? Um, And I've actually discovered more about Jesus than I've known before uh, through the reading and research that I've been doing and the study that I've been doing. And I hope you two also have kind of learned some more about Jesus. Uh, Because, uh, you know, you can kind of think you know someone and then you learn something else about them, right? Um, and that's the joy of the human soul. Like, I personally believe that there's no end to the human soul, it's infinite, that you can continue to find more and more and experience more and more of a person because the human soul is infinite, right? Uh, look at the person next to you and say, Your soul is infinite. Go on, be Pentecostal about it. <laughs> and there is not, there's, there's no end to you, there's no end to you. There's no end, and you know one of the one of the things I always think about marriage is is that marriages tend to break up when couples kind of like think that there's nothing more to discover about the other person, and I think that's just so sad because this human soul is infinite, and uh, I just want to encourage you um, if you're married, keep exploring your you know your partner and getting to know them more in faith, knowing there is more to know and love about them, and equally friendships, you know. Know that friendships are a journey and a discovery, right? There's there's so much to know about the other person. They're made in God's image. They're beautiful in God's image, and there's so much to know about them. I don't know why I'm talking about that because I'm talking about something else completely tonight, today. But uh, Jesus, that's what I was talking about. I hope through this talk series that you kind of you're inspired to learn more about Jesus and explore more about Jesus, because Jesus, uh, Jesus, he said of himself, and many people have said since that he w- was Son of God. And, uh, and to know Jesus means to know God. So this morning we're going uh, to do this. And we're going this is actually our penultimate talk in this box set series, which I'm gutted about. I'm like, oh, there's so much more to know, so much more to read about. Um, but we need to bring it to an end at some point. But I tell you what, we won't stop talking about Jesus, okay? Okay, good. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that you're quite pleased about that because we're obviously a church. Um, right, so the question I want to ask you this morning is, or the question I want to ask about Jesus is, what was Jesus' ethic? Or what word Jesus' ethics? Okay. Uh, I don't know if you consider yourself to be an ethical person. Some of you nodding there, maybe. Um, you probably, you're probably all good people and thinking to yourself, yeah, I obey the law. I obey the law. We obey the law of the land. We don't commit fraud. We pay our taxes. We don't physically assault or slander people. Some of us might have the financial ability to be able to make ethical choices about what we buy. And I say that because, with the cost of living crisis, it's increasingly hard to make ethical choices. To, because, because for some of us, like well, no, for all of us, we're having to look at our budgets and think, how do we cut costs? Um, but some of us might have the financial ability to make ethical choices about the way we spend our money. So our pensions may be invested in ethical funds. Uh, we may buy products that are um, sourced sustainably. We may offset the environmental impact of our transport. So. There's lots of ways in which we can make ethical decisions, and I'm sure many of you do that already. Um, To be ethical means to adhere to a set of standards or rules, doesn't it? And um, of course those standards and rules uh, vary from culture to culture. Um, And often it's difficult to know what is right and wrong, right? Um, It's difficult to kind of tease out what's the right thing to do in this situation how many of you are facing a situation right now in your life it may be a small thing or be a big thing where you're like i don't know what to do i've got an ethical dilemma i'm i'm kind of caught between two hard places like it, it's going to be painful whichever decision you make you know th- those are the sorts of things that we're faced with every day isn't it i wonder if you could uh Think about um, just a, a moment where you were facing an ethical dilemma. I was, as I was uh, writing this talk on, uh, was it Thursday or Friday? I, I look out of the window. My desk is, is looking straight out of the window. And um, as I was writing this, as I was having this thought, um, a red car zoomed down the road. We in, live in a cul-de-sac. I zoomed down the road with a teenager holding onto the roof rack. Um, which was a slightly bizarre moment. Um, and it went around the corner. And this teenager, I'm pretty sure, is like from one of my neighbours' houses across the road. Don't know them particularly well. Uh, but they shot off down the road with this kid clinging to this roof rack. And then they went around the block and they came back. And thankfully, he was still clinging to the roof rack when he came back. I'll like grinning with trying to pick out flies out of his mouth, I think. But the reality is, is that at that point, I, was, I felt like I had a bit of a dilemma. I was like, as a responsible adult, I should probably go and say, that's a stupid thing to do, don't do that again. But on the other hand, I thought, I can see why that looks fun. You know, so, so I was faced with an ethical dilemma. So, I feel like we're, we're faced with ethical dilemmas every day. Um, but you know, I, I don't know about you, I, I don't know if you're a rule keeper or a rule breaker. How do you feel about rules? I'm imagining, look, if we, all of us are generally rule keepers, okay, we like to live within the law of the land, okay, that's fair, isn't it, yeah, but some of us are rule keepers who are like, no, I'm going to do what I've been told to do, I am not going to break that rule, I've made my, given my word to that, I am not going to change my mind, Now, my wife's more of a rule keeper, whereas I'm a little bit more of a rule breaker, which means that we kind of have a bit of tension sometimes because there are differences between us. We're all on a spectrum, if you like, of the degree to which we want to keep rules. Some of us want to keep rules like to the absolute, you know, the last dot on the page, and some of us, eh, if we can find a way around it, we will. And we're all we're all somewhere between those two extremes. So the way we think about our ethics and rules and standards um, changes between us, but also. Standards and rules change from one era to the next. Do you know what I mean? So um, some rules and standards from a previous era can appear anachronistic and absurd in our present era. Even, even cruel, actually. There are some rules that we, that we might see from a previous era expressing themselves in our current era and actually that just feels cruel and wrong. How is that? Well, it's because standards and rules and ethics change between, from one era to the next. Let me try a thought experiment with you. So can you just imagine this for a moment? Just, you might want to close your eyes. Imagine you see a little old lady coming down the street at night. Okay, And she's carrying a great big purse. And it suddenly occurs to you that she's very little and has a very big purse. And it would be incredibly easy to knock her over and grab the purse. But you don't do it, do you? Why don't you do it? Why don't you do it? Well, there are possible, two possible answers, and that will depend to some extent on the culture that you live in. So if you live in a culture of shame and honor, you don't do it because that would make you be a despicable person, a person who is worthy, rather unworthy of respect. It would dishonor you and your family and, and your tribe, and people would despise you for picking on someone weak and vulnerable, and you would probably despise yourself for picking on her as well. It wouldn't be strong to knock an old lady over and grab her purse. And in a culture of shame and honour, it is critical that strength is respected. So that would be a shame and honour culture. And some of you might relate to that. You might be like, no, I get that. Yeah, I kind of understand that. Well, here's the thing. That approach is what you might call self-regarding, I want to suggest to you. You're thinking almost entirely of yourself and your tribe. And uh, that would be the reason you wouldn't do it. Because of the reflection it would be on you. There's a second train of thought, though, that would keep you from taking the purse. And in this train of thought, you would imagine how painful it would be to be mugged. How painful it would be to be mugged for this woman. Uh, How hard it would be if she was very dependent on the money in her purse. And you might ask yourself, if I mug her, what will happen to her? And what will happen to the people who depend on her? All things being equal you wanted to have a good life and so you don't do it for that reason now that is what we call an other regarding ethic utterly different from the moral reasoning and shame sorry the moral reasoning of the shame and honor culture so let me let me do a straw poll how many of you would steal her purse <laughs> okay so none of you would i assume right but how many of you would not steal her purse because of the shame and honor culture that you are, uh, you are concerned about yourself and, therefore, and your own reputation, so therefore you wouldn't do it. And how many of you, I'm not going to ask you to show. Uh, how many of you would not do it because of the other regarding culture, the c- culture of charity, you're concerned for her rather than you're for your own reputation? My guess is, is that you might have a little bit of both going on in there. And that would be reasonable, right? But this other regarding ethic... Well, it kind of stands a little bit different and apart from the culture of shame and honour. With a shame and honour ethic, I want to suggest that there's a value placed on pride rather than humility. Dominance rather than service. Courage rather than peacefulness. Glory rather than modesty. Loyalty rather than respect. Generosity to one's friends rather than equality. You may recognise some of those traits of a shame and honour culture. The truth is, in Western Europe and in Western culture, we tend to have an other-regarding culture when it comes to these sorts of ethics. And part of the reason for that is, is because the Western culture that we live in is built on the teachings of Paul, the Apostle, and on the teachings of Jesus Christ. And the other-regarding ethic is closely associated with Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to learn today about Jesus' ethics. So we're going to look at Mark, again, because we've been looking at Mark, 14 verses 43 to 49. And by the way, when I speak from here, I'm in a privileged position. Um, Nobody else has got a microphone, only me. And I'm not telling you that this is correct. I'm suggesting this to you. And you need to think about it and turn it over and talk with each other about it and talk with me about it. But this is... This is, I'm, not, I'm not telling you concreteness. I'm just suggesting things to you for us to consider. So um, this is from Mark 14, verses 43 to 49. Okay. Just as Jesus was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, that's the 12 disciples, appeared. And with him was a crowd armed with swords, clubs, uh, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer, that's Judas, had arranged a signal with the uh, representatives of the temple. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. And then one of those standing near drew a sword and struck the servant on the high priest, uh, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out to me with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, a teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled, he says rather cryptically. So, let me give you the setting for this. Jesus is in a garden called Gethsemane. It is a garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives. If you know Jerusalem, you'll know that Jerusalem is built on a big mount, and there are steep-sided valleys. There's actually, there's only one side that hasn't got a steep-sided valley, and that's the north of Jerusalem. But every other side is a steep-sided valley. Uh... This valley, I think it's called the Valley of Kidron, and then there's the Mount of Olives going up the other side. And Gethsemane is down in the bottom at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus has spent the night there. After um, celebrating the Passover with his disciples, which we talked about last week, um, he then um, spends the night in this garden of Gethsemane. So we know that those of you, well, I'm sure everyone pretty much is clear that uh, Jesus is betrayed by this man called Judas. Judas goes to the temple authorities who... Um, have had Jesus on the kill list. Okay? That literally, he's, 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 got a, he's got a playing card with his face on it. Okay? Jesus has been on the kill list for the temple authorities for months. And now one of the disciples of Jesus decides to betray him to the temple authorities and gets paid for it as well. So they send a mob with weapons. Because here's the thing. Jesus is thought to be a revolutionary leader and a threat to the authorities. And when I say authorities, when I say temple authorities, we won't get it, All right, We won't get it. And the reason we won't get it is because, apart from 26 bishops in the House of Lords, religious people aren't in control of our politics, but back then they were. Uh, There was a Roman governor, Pilate, but largely it was the temple authorities that basically administered justice in this land. They were the ones that decided... You know what was what, and they, they were in full authority. So what's happening here is that they want to kill Jesus because Jesus is seen as a revolutionary leader. They think he's going to lead an insurrection. Now they're not without good reason because in the in a few decades that have preceded Jesus, there have been some revolutionary leaders, and they've all been violent leaders. Okay, so this is this is this is the setting that Jesus is in. He's mistaken, if you like, to be, for being a violent revolutionary leader. So. They think he's going to be dangerous, and what's more, they think his followers are going to be dangerous. And just to remind us, you know, Jesus wasn't this kind of, uh, kind of wimpish, kind of white British man, um, you know, that you know, kind of was feeble. I genuinely think Jesus was a, a labourer. He was a carpenter. You know, we think Jesus' ministry, like the the time that we read about in the Gospels, is kind of like between one and three years, at the most three years, but actually at the least maybe a year. Okay, so so Jesus is still the same strapping carpenter that he would have been. Now, I'm not saying Jesus looked like Tyson Fury, but I think it's important to recognise that Jesus was not this kind of lame, limp man that couldn't defend himself. He would have been seen as a threat to the establishment. His followers were, were strapping fishermen, okay? And again, we can't quite understand what that looks like because we don't see so much of that kind of... Um, Uh, those kind of professions represented in our community here in Bristol. But but honestly, I think it's fair to say that Jesus and his his fellow compatriots presented a potential physical threat to the authorities. So what they do, they send a mob armed armed to the teeth to make sure that if there is an insurrection here, that they can put it down pretty quickly. That's that's what's happening here. But what what does Jesus say? Well, Jesus says, look... My philosophy, my kingdom, is not of this world. He says, I am not a violent, revolutionary insurrectionist. That is not what my kingdom is all about. And if that's what you think I am all about, then you really don't understand me. Jesus inverted the pyramid of power. He effectively said, this is how I'm going to change the world. I'm going to put others ahead of myself. I'm going to love my enemies. I'm going to serve and sacrifice for others. I am not going to repay evil with evil. I am going to overcome evil with love. Weakness, poverty, suffering and rejection will now be top of the list, not bottom of the list. Which is kind of weird. I mean, who ever heard of survival of the weakest? That's not the way in which we understand it. We think in terms of survival of the fittest. And Jesus says, no. The way I think, the way God thinks, Yahweh thinks, because Jesus was speaking in a Jewish context, it's upside down. It's an inverted pyramid. Now we know from other accounts of Jesus' life, like Matthew, um, Luke and John, that his ethic was to regard other people at least as Important as oneself if not more important if you want to study this a little bit more at home look at Matthew 5 and Luke 6 for more information on Jesus' teaching about the way he saw the world it was upside down it will be counter to what you kind of value it's counter to what I kind of value because the reality is is that Jesus turned everything upside down uh, the things that we despise he loved and the things that we loved he despised he turned it all upside down um, but let me, let me um, give you an example. Let's reflect on his answer to the question that was asked of him by a teacher of the law who said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in the law? All right, And there's 613 laws. And Jesus, quite unprecedented by the way, he took the Old Testament and he said these two of the 613 are the most important. And do you remember what they were? The first one was this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Fascinating. We're so familiar with it, friends. Particularly if you've been part of a church for a while. You're familiar with those words. So, much, so familiar that actually they tend to just go straight over your head. Just like, whoa, yeah, yeah that's what Jesus thought. But just think about what it means. It really does mean that's what, he, that's what he did. He valued loving other people more important than his own needs. Now, where did Jesus, where did Jesus get this from? Well, I'm going to suggest there's, there's three sources for Jesus' ethic of regarding other people as more important than himself. Three sources. The first source is his Jewish heritage. If you've not heard me say this before, Jesus wasn't a Christian. He was a Jew. He was an ethnic Jew. In fact, some historians would, call, would re- refer to him as a Judean, not a Jew, because the word Jew is used differently today than it was back then. So he was a Judean. He was a member of one tribe, the Judeans. Okay, And the Judeans valued the Torah, the law of Moses, really highly. And so... When Jesus answered with the, that quote, he, he was selecting two of the 613 commands of the law. And he, he's quite selective. Just so you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. There's a quotation of Deuteronomy 6.5. And love your neighbour as yourself is a quotation of Leviticus 19.18. It's not even written together. Jesus selects two of the commands of the law and says these two are the most important. See, We shouldn't be surprised that Jesus quotes the law of Moses, right? Because he's an ethnic Jew. He's an intelligent ethnic Jew. Now, scholars are divided about whether he received an extensive scholarly training to be a rabbi. On balance, I think most people would say he didn't. But, Judeans were so immersed in their traditions and culture that Jesus would have learned all of the stories of Israel through the traditions that his family celebrated and his his community celebrated throughout the year. So every year, they would celebrate all the different festivals. Um, we, We talked about Passover last week. That was just one of many festivals that they celebrated. And at those festivals, they retold the history of Israel. And that's how these stories are passed from generation to generation to generation. So Jesus would have been utterly familiar with the law of Moses and completely familiar with the history of his people. Okay, so first thing, we get Jesus pulls his ethic of regarding other people straight out of his Jewish heritage. The second source of Jesus' ethic is his spirituality. Mark gives us a really interesting insight into Jesus' spirituality. I just want to yeah. give you some examples. Mark Mark begins with Jesus' vision of a dove descending at him on him at his baptism. All right, so Mark says, a dove descends on Jesus, and these words from heaven are spoken, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Do you remember that? Who heard that? Jesus heard that. There were other people around, and other authors say, well, yeah, it sounded like thunder. They didn't actually hear a voice. It just sounded like thunder when Jesus was baptized and came up out of the water. But no, Mark records it from saying, this is my son, with whom, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Bizarre. What? And then... Mark says that Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, which was uh, an area of uninhabited land um, with deeply crevassed with ravines, uh, just sort of west of the Dead Sea. If you've ever been there, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's pretty inhospitable, really dry and hot and arid. Nothing can grow there. And the Spirit drives him into that place, not, I might add, unusual for someone who would be a spiritual person you know john the baptist where did he live like, like it says that john the baptist lived in the desert what did he wear i mean i don't know about you but i always get really uncomfortable when i read this he, he wore a shirt made of hair wasn't it what was it horse hair or something i can't remember and he had locusts i'm like freaked out by the whole experience honestly when i was a kid i just did when I was a kid, my mum would put me in clothes that were itchy, like woolen, itchy clothing. I'm really, I'm a nightmare. Honestly, my mother, if she was here, she'd laugh and let her head off because I was a nightmare to dress because I couldn't cope with that sort of stuff against my skin. So when I read that John the Baptist was wearing this shirt made of hair, I'm like, oh, oh I couldn't cope with it. So the reason is, is that he was austere, okay? He was an, he was an ascetic. He lived in the desert. He, he lived on locusts. He didn't have a normal life. And to some extent, Jesus was like that. You know, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, has this spiritual experience, Sp- drives him into the desert. He fasts for 40 days and nights. I've tried fasting. I've managed five out of seven days during, the, during Lent, and I think I'm a hero for doing that. I mean, like, you know, it's just ridiculous. Like, 40 days and nights without food and food. And, and, and water probably as well. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but I think he didn't drink water either. So what, a, what an austere spiritual experience to have. Honestly, I think if we met Jesus, we might be like, he's a bit weird. I mean, I really mean that. But he was deeply spiritual. Uh, uh, Mark also recalls him as praying for hours and hours and hours by himself. I mean, honestly, how many of us do that? There are one or two, maybe? I don't know. But he would literally spend hours in prayer and meditation, a practice not Unusual for someone considered to be um, spiritual. I'm going to say, I use a word to describe it, but it might be a bit shocking, but like a spiritual mystic. Many scholars think that's how Jesus lived his life. So, for instance, um, out of all of these spiritual experiences that Jesus had, because he didn't really have a, uh, he didn't watch TV like you and I do. You know, he didn't read books like you and I do. He didn't go down to the gym like you and I do. Uh, Jesus. Spent a lot of time in prayer, and meditation, fasting. He was a spiritual person. And out of that place, he healed people. I mean, again, just, we're, so, we're so familiar with Jesus. It goes right over our head. Oh yeah, Jesus healed people. Yeah, He healed hundreds of people. In fact, historians think that there's no one in, in Jewish history who healed more people than Jesus did. Jesus was a profoundly powerful spiritual healer. And again, it's difficult to draw... Forgive me, because I can't think of many comparisons, so forgive me on this one, because some of you won't like it. I I think Jesus wouldn't have looked out of place at a psychic fair at Glastonbury, offering to heal people, because that's what he did. He healed people left, right and centre. Can you imagine, right, if there was a, a psychic spiritual healer at Glastonbury and got a reputation for healing literally hundreds of people? I mean, really healing them. Like, not just kind of making a pain in their foot go, but literally someone being blind, like being able to see. Say that happened right now for the next year. That person would get a reputation. This is the kind of reputation Jesus had. He was, a, he was deeply spiritual. And out of that spiritual place came incredible power to heal people. And he didn't just use it for his own Benefit. He used it to heal people. So I think what we're seeing here is that Jesus' other person ethic came out of his deep, deep spiritual connection to God. Third, The third source of Jesus' other person ethic was his own experience of poverty and injustice. Okay, so Jesus lived in Nazareth. It was a marginalised town in the middle of nowhere. Um, he lived in a marginalized social class I mean, we think inequality is big now it was massive then and and he would have grown up in poverty but he also would have grown up seeing great wealth because 50 miles down the road Herod Herod Agrippa you may know of one of the rulers of that area built this amazing town called Sepphoris and it was the seat of his power it was the seat of political power and there was a lot of money in that town and Jesus would have Uh, probably made things that were bought by people in that town. His father would have probably been involved in building that city or town. The reality is that Jesus would have seen great inequalities and he would have seen how people were oppressed and victims of injustice. And as we know, someone, someone becomes passionate about social injustice it's often because they've experienced it firsthand. Think of Martin Luther King. Think of Gandhi. People who fight On behalf of other people, generally have experienced injustice and pain and suffering themselves. And I think it's fair to say that Jesus experienced firsthand what injustice and pain and suffering was being experienced by the community in which he lived, and he would have seen it all around him. And whether we know whether whether he was personally a victim of it, we don't know. But he did have an unusual sensitivity to people who were poor, people who were victims of injustice. Really unusual sensitivity. And so, um, when we think about where Jesus got his other person ethic from, we reckon that he definitely got some of that from experiencing it himself firsthand. We know that Jesus was part of a rich tradition of Jewish prophets who spoke out against economic and social injustice. Think about Moses, Nathan, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Amos, amongst others. In the history of of Israel, wherever there was injustice, the only people who spoke up for those people who were being oppressed and, 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 um, and, and effectively mistreated and abused were the prophets. Uh, it's hard to read the prophets because they use really colourful language, but if you really get to the heart of what the prophets are about, they are fighting on behalf of people who don't have a voice. And prophets have a big voice. So we have this situation where Jesus is considered to be like one of the prophets. And these prophets, they protested against the politics of oppression. Because in that society, a minority of men held all the power, and ordinary people had no voice and no power in society. They protested against the economics of exploitation. In agricultural society, the two sources of wealth were people, peasants, and agricultural land. And in Jesus' time... More than half of the wealth generated from the land ended up in the hands of 1% wealthiest people. Of course, it's not much different today, is it? I, I, literally, um, I just googled that, this this uh, stat, and um, do you know, Oxfam um, said this. Oxfam reported that 252 men have more wealth than all 1 billion women, girls, women and girls in Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean combined. Not a lot different is it jesus spoke against that and and those prophets before him spoke against it and they thirdly protested against the legitimization of injustice by religion i've said it before and i'll say it again what happens is that corrupt powerful leaders get religious leaders corrupt le- religious leaders to basically legitimize what they're doing um and the reality is, is that that happens today and it happened then. So you would have kings who claim to rule by divine right. How many, of, how many of us get frustrated by that? You get leaders say, yeah, I am God's chosen one. Mm, I, I'm not sure you are because you're corrupt and you're unjust. And that's not what God is like. They claim that Yahweh was on the side of the poor and the vulnerable. That's what the, the, the uh, prophets did. And, uh, and they were actually speaking against the minority of people who use their power and wealth... To control and oppress people. And in Jesus' day, the people that did that were the temple authorities. Like they were, they were kind of just like they were the ones that were oppressing the people. It wasn't it wasn't even Pilate. Pilate had a more of a kind of an external role. They let the temple authorities just get on with it. So the temple authorities basically they oppressed and they limited access to justice particularly to, to those, to the poor and, and the vulnerable. So, if you wanted justice in Jesus' day, you went to the temple. But the temple authorities, well, they would limit your ability to get justice by insisting that you buy an animal to sacrifice. And most poor people couldn't afford to do that. So they couldn't get justice. And and the purity laws, you know, famously, Jesus Ran into lots of arguments with the Pharisees to teach the law and the scribes. Why he used to say to them, look, you know, particularly the Pharisees, you know, you, you kind of tithe every little bit of your kind of, um, you're, like, you're, you're really picky about tithing your spices, which by, in those days were a source of wealth. And he says, but the reality is, is that you oppress the poor at the same time. See, the purity laws were meant to limit people's access to justice. So you could only be considered pure and holy and therefore be, be admitted into all of the right places if you were considered pure um, in ceremonial terms. And if you couldn't access the ceremonial laws because you couldn't afford it or because you were from the wrong social caste, then effectively you were prevented from just having justice. And so the purity laws were less about piety and they were more about politics, which should actually be a warning to Christians who make purity an issue of piety and politics. Where we say, you can't do this because you're not living in the right way. You're digging that right out of the Old Testament. And you should know that Jesus was against that kind of thing. So it's important that we recognise that Jesus was like in the line of prophets. He was always speaking of the poor, the vulnerable and the oppressed. So what does this mean for us? Well, you can take this from this what you want, but my suggestion is, is that we need to recognise that if Jesus was considered to be a man who took up the cause of the oppressed and the vulnerable and the poor and the needy, then so should we, if, if we want to follow his example. That Jesus' ethic was to regard other people as more important than himself, that's really hard and I think Jesus sets a really high standard for us but if we want to be ethical like Jesus was ethical we might consider that but also I think we need to recognise that our western society is built on this ethic of Jesus that it is out of concern for other people rather than concern for his own reputation that Jesus loved other people does that make sense? and that's what we've inherited because it's come right through the generations since Jesus and through, through the influence of the Roman Catholic Church and the church in general throughout the Middle Ages, we still have, although we may not ascribe it to Jesus, we still have this other person ethic in our culture. And it's because of Jesus. So, I want to encourage us to do this today. I want to encourage us to reflect on our own prejudices towards other people who are not like us. So, people who, whose skin might be a different colour from us. People who might have a different education, people who have different politics, people who have different wealth, people who have different sexual orientation, people who have different gender, people who have changed their gender. We need to ask ourselves, are we unintentionally thinking of ourselves as better than those people? Are we unintentionally excluding those people from justice? Are we unintentionally excluding those people from God? Are we exploiting other people? Are we oppressing other people? It's no surprise, friends, that Christians generally lead the way in trying to confront forms of injustice and oppression. Because this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus did. So... So I want to invite you just to reflect on that for a moment. Holy Spirit, thank you that you make Jesus known to us. And as we study the scriptures, we can see what he was like. And we know what you are like because of that. And so right now, I pray that Holy Spirit, if there's anything in us where we're preferring ourselves more than other people, would you show us? And um, because I'm asking this for myself as well, would you just show us one thing? Because I think there's probably a ton of things that I do that are, are, are in my own interest before anyone else's. And so be gentle with me because I need your leadership. I need your help. I need your inspiration. I need your empowerment. But Holy Spirit, would you help us um, if we so wish? be other person-centered and to regard other people as more important as ourselves so that we might end up being people who work for the God of other people, who contribute to the well-being of our families, who contribute to the well-being of our workplaces, who contribute to the well-being of our neighborhoods, who contribute to the well-being of our communities, who contribute to the well-being of our city and our world. Holy Spirit, would you help us with this? And would you empower us to do this in Jesus' name we pray. And we use Jesus' name because what an amazing example you are Jesus to us. Would you do that I pray. We love your ethic. We, we love the ethic of being other person centred. Only we find it hard to do. So Holy Spirit would you help us to change. And right now, if you're thinking to yourself, I I know what you're talking about, Owen, but honestly, I I don't know if I can do it. If you're like that, I'm like that as well, all right, so you're not alone. Um, But we can ask God to help us. God, would you fill our hearts with unconditional love? Not just for ourselves, but for other people.